Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. In this episode, we're speaking with Doug Elinoff. He's a founding partner of Elinoff, Grossman & Scholl, which is a New York-based law firm focused on a number of areas, including corporate securities, SPACs, IPOs, and M&A. This was an energetic conversation with a highly successful corporate lawyer who represents some major names, but is also a staunch advocate for entrepreneurs and small business owners. He's been quoted in major financial publications, including the Wall Street Journal and Bloomberg, as well as testifying before a congressional committee on investor protection, entrepreneurship, and capital markets. In our conversation, we discuss the current hype around SPACs, the Canadian junior public markets as a stepping stone for financing growth, and how he pioneered a flat fee legal model for early stage companies, among a number of topics. We even got into crowdfunding. This is one of those interviews I feel could have just kept on going with the number of topics and areas Doug could have spoken to. He shares a lot of valuable information and experience, so I hope you enjoy this episode. I sure did. Doug, welcome to the show. Corey, thanks for the invitation. It's nice to be here. What do you say we get into it? Um, I'd love to get a background on your legal career, the firm you've built over the last 25 years, and your areas of practice. No, I appreciate your reaching out to me, and I hope I can share something of value after 30 years, actually. But thank you. you know, I'm a securities lawyer. My father was a securities lawyer for 50 years. So it's in the family blood. And, you know, from my point of view, it's a balance, as it was for him, helping entrepreneurs raise capital and balancing it and doing it in a way that's socially and responsible in a way that complies with securities laws and gives opportunity for investors to invest in new and interesting investments, but to do it in a way that protects investors from hurting themselves to some degree, but also making sure they go in eyes wide open. So the law firm's been around for 30 years, as I said. I actually have been a professional longer than that, not surprisingly. We're 125 plus lawyers today. We weren't always this large at one point in time. We were two people in a shoebox, uh, but life's been good to us. And I think we have approached the practice of law very differently than most lawyers. So I look forward to exploring that conversation with you. Oh, good stuff. It's interesting. I mean, you've obviously got an entrepreneurial journey as well then, having built a, a firm from yourself and your founding partners up to over 100 practicing lawyers. That's awesome. Is it true? And I understand that you're also, you're an investor in startups, early stage companies, private equity deals. So can you give us a bit of background on that and what you look for and experience there? Yeah, I'd start by saying I am a finance lawyer, a business lawyer. So that's my orientation is working with companies. 
it wasn't always a sure thing that I was going to practice law. There were times where I thought I'd become either just an investor in private equity or venture or become an investment banker or something along those lines. But out of respect and for my father and interest in the discipline, I went this direction. But I've always maintained an active investor profile. And so for 30 years, I've also invested. I wouldn't say it's large sums of money, certainly a lot of personal money. I've learned to lose money with the best of them and grow and be better at investing over the years. But we also have established several legal technology businesses that were opportunities that we saw as a result of our involvement in various entrepreneurial finance programs like crowdfunding, which you have up in Canada as well. I worked with the OSC and some law firms up in Canada on your crowdfunding rules. And so we've created some legal tech companies in and around that new ecosystem. So investing, starting business, starting the law firm, growing the law firm, and counseling hundreds of entrepreneurs and private and public companies over the years has given us a perspective. Hmm. I definitely want to get into the discussion of entrepreneurial finance and working with counsel and things to look out for there. And also with about SPACs and IPOs, where I know you've got a lot of experience there. But I'm curious to know about how you've seen the legal, how do you say, the legal landscape change and legal tech come in. I noted that on your website, you do flat fee engagements, which I think is a change to the traditional model. How is the legal world changing and how is this uh, going to affect entrepreneurs and also the profession? There's a lot to unpack there, Corey. It's a great (laughs) question. No, I love that because you know, I will say something that's very impolitic and it's only partially true. So we'll explore why it's not fully true. So I believe, particularly for startup practice of entrepreneurship, it should be a largely commoditized practice and legal service offering so that clients who don't have a lot of money can get started on their journey in a budgeted way. And that's important. We've done that in crowdfunding. I've done that with legal technology companies that do document automation There are certain predictable things that you can do, anticipate for any startup company, whether it's the incorporation, the bylaws, shareholders agreements, employment agreements, leases, things like that, that, like I said, are anticipatable in the life cycle of what an entrepreneur is likely to do, a Series A financing, a note financing. And to me, let's not over-lawyer that. Most of these companies are going to fail And let's not bleed them dry. Let's give them the best opportunity. Hmm. And in my mind, that's a flat fee. That's the history of the firm. We've been flat fees for the 30 years, wherever we can be. And now that we're larger and our fees are higher, we still cut alternative fee arrangements with startup companies when we have the capacity, which we're hard pressed for right now, where we say, listen, we'll cap the number at X. And if and when you do a Series A round or a convertible note round, we'll get paid a percentage of it. And we'll try and be a really good partner over time. So that's, I think, very important for startup entrepreneurs to realize there are a lot of lawyers. You don't have to go to the large law firms to get sufficient legal work. It doesn't have to be the best quality because Mm. with all due respect to most entrepreneurs, you're not likely to get to the end of the rainbow. (laughs) So save your money. Statistically speaking, absolutely. That's just the reality of it. And if you make mistakes, and I'm not recommending that anybody make mistakes in their legal documents, there are typically ways to fix it and clean it up later on. 
the vast majority of entrepreneurs don't even consult lawyers and still manage to clean it up later on if, in fact, they're successful. So the idea of paying ungodly sums of money for your opportunity when that money is the difference between survival and not seems to me to be imprudent. You know, I really appreciate where you're coming from there and that advice to entrepreneurs. I mean, whether they're starting out or even have a a business doing a million or more a year in revenue kind of thing that sweating over, you know, every I and every T and making sure it's crossed with your legal team isn't the most prudent thing to do. And you're not getting the best out of your counsel when you're doing that. You're probably overpaying. Well, and what we're saying, to be clear to the audience, we're not saying be neglectful. Mm, I'm saying, what are the big picture issues? I want to know how much I'm getting, how much you're getting. I want to know what the value for everything is. I want to know, are we issuing common stock, preferred stock, convertible securities? But whether or not there are 10 different versions of a miscellaneous provision on forum selection or whatever... I just want to pick one, and that's not going to be the difference between whether or not my opportunity is successful or not. Mm. And we'll revisit those things that don't really matter later on, and I don't want to give a license to my professionals to run up a legal bill. I want it to be finite. I want to get it to be satisfactory and adequate, but I don't want to ivory tower it. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic. That's the orientation we came at this with 30 years ago. And now you see legal technology packages and even large law firms offering startup packages. And I think that that's great and it's enlightened. I think that's the way the profession should give back. And I think that's good for society. At some point, we'll delve into my legal technology company and where I see some failings in even what we just talked about. But it was flat fee that got us started and 30 years ago. And to this day, Even our IPO activity, our SPAC IPO activity, our practice called Pipes, which we're number one in the world in Pipes, which is private placements into public companies, that's flat fee. So where we can be flat fee and make it predictable, we try to be. We think that we are good at pricing it out after having done hundreds, if not thousands of these things. Sometimes we lose, and that's okay because more often than not, we don't. But it incentivizes us to be efficient. Very interesting. Let's get into the world of SPACs and IPOs. There's definitely a lot of headlines in and around the world of SPACs right now, but can you give us just a high level definition or explanation of SPACs and IPOs? And then we can drive into the questions from there. Please do. And I will answer your question after I have the opportunity to ask you a question. What's a private equity fund? Private equity fund? Well, it's a general partner who is controlling a pool of capital to invest on behalf of their investors. Okay, great. So a SPAC is a public vehicle that raises capital to put to use in the future that that same business person, whether a private equity general partner or venture partner, is going to search for opportunities to finance them. And the SPAC is the vehicle by which the public investors, after a registered offering, whether it's through the OSC or the SEC, raise money. The money sits in a escrow account that is subject to redemption by the investors at the time that they see full disclosure about the deal that's being suggested that they invest permanent capital into. They can either take their money back because they don't like the deal, or they can stay in the deal. So a SPAC starts off as a blind pool offering with complete optionality on behalf of the public investors 
to stay in and support the ultimate deal that the sponsor of the SPAC identifies, or they can ask for their money back. So it's a single purpose private equity proposition is really what it is. Now, what people get confused by, and it's episodic in the history of SPACs over the last 25 years, sometimes like in today's SPAC market, this is a financing technique. Mm. They're using the capital that they raise in the IPO to deploy into the private company, like an alternative to an IPO. It's a financing. It happens to be undertaken as an acquisition because the private company goes public and goes public by way of an acquisition, but it's really for the purpose of raising the money that's raised in the IPO. So with SPACs, I mean, this is in Canada, we have our public venture capital system and the the capital pool. uh, The CPCs. Exactly, right? And very similar, except for down in the US there, you guys do uh, everything with a few more zeros, it seems. Although you have your own SPAC program up in Canada as well. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what? It's highly successful and it's become internationally recognized and it's a very good tool to bring good companies to market. Something I'm curious about though, and maybe we can get into IPOs later, but specific to SPACs, as an example, I just read an article, a Harvard Business Review article from February talking about SPACs being a bubble and is it about to burst? And there's a lot of heat there. There's a lot of names. There's a lot of people who are promoting these What's happening there? And are we going to see something that is going to reoccur? Because I think it was 2010 where we had the same kind of heat in the SPAC world. Well, it's very different than 2010, but and it's not the same thing as the dot-com bubble of 2000. You know, I think people are myopic when they look at these things and they don't have to take the real broad view as to what's going on. When I was a young professional, there were nearly eight to 9,000 publicly traded companies in the United States of America on NASDAQ and New York Stock Exchange. At no point in the last 30 years have I heard regulators or probably the same people in the Harvard Business Review say, well, why don't we have the same number we had 30 years ago? We got down to 3,600 public companies. We're now back up somewhere in between. I happen to believe the public markets need to be healthy. The amount of money under management, whether it's in Canada or in the US, by pension funds and others is not the same as it was 30 years. It's multiples of that, yet the number of investable assets is less. How can that be? That's a problem in search of a solution. You first have to identify the problem. And the problem is twofold in my estimation. One is I believe regulators went about their business over the last 30 years to make it more difficult for companies to be public. I think the legal profession, the accounting profession, and and the investment banking community has their own reasons that they need to explain for why we don't have more public companies, but I'll come back to that. So we've decreased the number of public companies in the investable universe for investors, mostly institutional investors, by the way, not retail investors. Mm. And we have made it harder. We've disincentivized people. And as a result, the private company universe within private equity and venture has risen by multiples, probably nearly 10,000 portfolio companies. So if you believe, which I do not, that it is healthier to have more private portfolio companies than public, then there's no problem worth addressing. I happen to disagree with that. And the root cause of the imbalance in my mind is that there are fewer underwriters that are willing to take companies public in today's market than there were years ago because regulators believe that there are a lot of smaller underwriters doing 
disreputable deals in their estimation, and they wanted to put them out of business, and they did. So that business became larger underwriters doing fewer deals, but larger unicorn sort of offerings when you look at the trend line over 30 years. And so only accessible gone, to institutions, basically. Correct. So we've gone from 1,000 public offerings a year down to 250. Wow. Yeah. So along comes SPACs. And SPACs stand really for the proposition that business people will make the determination of which private companies are or ought to be eligible to go public without an underwriter making that decision on behalf of the private company universe. Again, that doesn't bother me. I think if underwriters aren't going to satisfy the needs, then outsourcing the solution to business people makes sense to me. Mm -hmm. The notion that only investment bankers can determine and select which companies go public I, again, can't sign on for. Can they do it? Yes. Should they have exclusive domain over that? No. Call it disruptive regulatory entrepreneurial finance. It <laughs> works in my estimation. Yeah. And so that's what the SPAC market's addressing. The whole notion, and I'll let you get your next question, Corey. I apologize. It's no, just, no, all good. I'm liking where we're going. A, there's a whole diatribe here, which is that private companies don't want to go public. We have debunked that observation by virtue of what's happened in the SPAC market over the last year. If you give quality companies an opportunity to get public and help them raise money so they can go do the things that they want to do, they will go public, subject themselves to litigation, compliance costs, all those things. So that's what's going on on a macro basis. Then you can get to the issue of the Harvard Business article that you cite, which is, has it come too far too fast? Maybe. But okay, maybe around the edges, maybe 10% of the deals ought not be mm. public. And who am I to decide that this company is pre-IPO-able? Who's decided what companies are ready to be public? Boards uh, of directors are looking to get off their stock? Well, if that's not, uh, we can talk about that. I think the first suggestion is whether or not a company isn't old enough or mature enough or doesn't have the revenue model. There's nothing written in the securities laws that say that only companies with $100 million of revenue can go public. Yeah, There are rules. You have to have audited financials. You have to tell investors the risks of where that company stands in its development. And that's what I do for a living, and I'm a big believer in that. Mm. But after I've done that, this is not a merit review. This is a democratic process that if I give you full and fair disclosure, you can make the investment risk decision yourself. Yeah. And then vote with your money. Correct. Or not. Now, that doesn't mean everything should be eligible. That's up to brokerage firms to decide if they have a know your customer responsibility. But the notion that the companies that are being brought to the market today are premature is amusing to me because nobody was talking about the SPACs prior to two years ago when every one of those were real revenue companies with real EBITDA, but nobody thought the industry was interesting. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. And you know, I, I, it makes me reflect on our markets up here in Canada with our public venture capital system and CPCs. And you know, there's, for example, one of our clients, two two and a half years old, did a reverse merger with some technology they acquired at 1.8 million revenue year one and 26 million in revenue now on target to hit cash flow break even. And yeah, they've had to take their lumps in the public markets. 
but they use what was the public venture capital system. And what I like to believe and see is that this system gives access to practically all investors, but also an opportunity as an alternative to traditional venture capital. Both of them come with their strings, but it's part of, I think, a vibrant part of our economy. So we have a lot of cross currents that we're discussing. I happen to really respect the Canadian stepping stone approach to the public markets. The CPC is a reverse merger, which we've had in the US you know, for much longer. However, we never branded it in a way that the markets accepted it as a legitimate way of doing things. The CPC mm. market in Canada is a starting place to put training wheels on smaller venture-like options so they can go up to the TSX venture, up to the TSX or beyond NEO, whatever it is, it's a ladder and climb it if you can. In the US, we don't have that. Reverse mergers have been stigmatized by many people and some of the criticisms are legitimate. I'm not saying that all criticisms aren't fair game, but it's a mechanism and there will be good people trying to do good things with them. There are bad people who will be trying. And let's make intellectual distinctions between the two as thoughtful human beings. Let's not just stigmatize the whole thing. One of the reasons SPAC's got a bad name is it is a reverse merger vehicle. It happens to also be a blind pool. So you marry two negatives in the capital markets and forget about it. Yeah, there's uh, a headline for you. Yeah. <laughs> heads will blow off and law firms and accounting firms won't touch it. And so it took 30 years to get the SPAC market to be unstigmatized or destigmatized. Mm-hmm. But to your point, I like CPCs. Are we pro-capital markets, pro-entrepreneurship, where we want people to take calculated risks, both entrepreneurs and investors, in a transparent way, as opposed to backyard barbecues where people toss you know, five, ten, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000 into a deal and they can't see what's going on. How mm-hmm. is that good for anybody? Equally controversial to the SPAC program, Corey, is the crowdfunding movement, which I've spent a decade on. It's insane to me that that's controversial. We are marrying friends and family online in a transparent way. And if you do that and you provide them with updated ongoing disclosure, even to sell them they're losing their money, there has been no problems in crowdfunding in the five years that we've been involved. Unlike when you do it through the private markets, because people wake up and they find out that they lost their money without even knowing how it was spent. Mm. So crowdfunding online through these platforms that are both in Canada and the U.S., is extremely healthy. It's proven itself out in the US. We just changed the rules to from million dollar financings up to five. Wow. These are all alternative finance programs to help entrepreneurs do good. Yes, are there people who are going to do bad things, steal money, spend money inappropriately? Yes, but in total, is this good for our markets? And before I'll let you jump in, and I know I'm hogging your show, so I apologize. <laughs> no, man, it's all good. Okay, in SPACs, when the deal that really ignited the SPAC market was Virgin Galactic. Mm. Well, I'm like, oh my God, you know, we've spent 10 years building this program out with all these really earnest EBITDA positive companies. And now Virgin Galactic, which is a pre revenue, who wants to take a moonshot, is going to kill my market. And it did just the opposite. It captured the imagination. And now there have been six, seven EV car companies. Let's assume. of them fail. 
I'm not wishing that on anybody. I'm not wishing for retail investors to lose money. But do I want to see us put money to work behind next-gen healthcare, lithium, EV, spaceship, wild imagination? Yeah. It doesn't offend me in the slightest, particularly since most of that money is coming from U.S. institutional investors. Hmm. Hmm. My God, there's so many. My mind is just spinning with different areas we can go in this conversation. I'm really enjoying it. I want to bring it back to some advice, though, and I really appreciate your enthusiasm for the entrepreneur and for you know, for our, our capital markets here and early stage capital markets. One thing I noted in the research I did was you provided testimony to the U.S. House Committee on Financial Services. And you said in there that a better job needs to be done to school and educate entrepreneurs about this and about the public markets. So if we were to start there and with the experience you've had advising your clients over the years, what kind of advice needs to be provided to them or things they need to know about going public, whether it be IPO, SPAC, or however, where can we start there? Well, even crowdfunding, which is a semi-public offering, it is there is an enormous responsibility which comes with taking other people's money. I don't care in what way or mechanism that it happens. If you're not up for the job of taking the money and giving it your best, and telling the good and bad news to your investors in relatively real time, then don't take the money because you deserve to be criticized. You deserve to be not given more money if you don't take the money and do with it what A, you said you were going to do in your use of proceeds, what you thought your business was going to be. Don't change and pivot with my money without letting me know and asking me if it's okay. We all know in early stage life, things go wrong. Tell me about it. Mm -hmm. I can't help you if you don't tell me. If I wake up two, three years later, and all you tell me is, sorry, we failed, that doesn't satisfy my level of inquiry as to what you did. Did you fail because you were a bad manager or because the idea was a bad one? Something reminds me, and this is probably the quote I quote most, which came from one of our guests, Cody Sanchez, formerly with Goldman Sachs and now a venture capitalist. She says, the best companies over-communicate. And with that, it's the good and the bad. And she said that there's been times where I recall from our conversation that when bad news comes in, alternatives and options come out in essence. And so there's a huge thing to that vulnerability as an entrepreneur coming forward and saying, hey, this is kind of going sideways. But those who've invested you, they have an incentive to help figure things out. And sometimes it can work. Even if they don't have an incentive, which I accept what your previous guest said, I think that's good guidance, is I'm not going to be mad at you for losing my money. Most people are not mad at you for losing their money if you did what you said you were going to do. I'm going to get mad if you hide the ball. Hmm. Or obviously, if you steal it, that is so statistically unlikely. It's not to say that does happen. There's fraud and Ponzi schemes. I'm not naive. But when you go back through the history, if anybody writes a book or research on the history of regulatory pushback to online capital formation and how they leveraged the concern of investors losing money due to fraud and theft hmm. versus the reality of the last five years, which is statistical non-existence of that, their own acknowledgement, 
Well, why can't I now push back and say, well, why did we lose five years? Why didn't it happen sooner? Why did we only increase the amount to five million now? Because you told us it was going to be a disaster five years ago. We only did it a million. There is real societal harm done by listening to our worst fears. I'm not saying don't take protection, anything but there are ways of anticipating problems. And one of them is transparency. And if you don't like the answers you're getting, give people a mechanism to challenge the people who are entrusted with the money that you gave them. Letting them do it in the backyard and not through an online platform where there's accountability isn't the answer in that example. So the message to the entrepreneur is it's not your money. And if you want to be an entrepreneur, a serial entrepreneur, and keep raising more money, I've seen people who've lost money honorably go back to the markets and raise money again for their next idea because they become a better entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. But if you fail to be responsive to your shareholder base, leave town. Losing money honorably. I think there's, uh, there's something to be said about that. I mean, obviously, you don't want to do that, but there's something to be said about those who can do it. No, but let's not be shy about that, Cody. Honestly, what percentage of venture capital is lost or friends yeah. and family capital is lost? These are not debt financing. It's part of the it. game. It's more than part of the game. It's an actuary likelihood of the game. Right. Now, for those who have grown past that, they're looking to list. And I mean, perhaps I don't have a full view of understanding the US markets when it comes to going public through a SPAC or our IPO. As, as I mentioned, you know, the deals we do in Canada are very much smaller and can be a stepping stone to graduate to the senior markets in the US, like the NASDAQ. But if an entrepreneur, let's say they've you know, they've got a $50 million business and they've private equity investment and they're looking for liquidity, and then an option is to be going public, what should they know? And how should they be working with their counsel to make sure they're doing the best things? I'm going to answer the question, but the other thing that just dawned on me that's important, everybody needs to exercise a discipline. And that discipline has to be, whether it's the entrepreneur asking for the money or the investor, never invest more than you can lose and it won't change your life. Mm. If you do stick to that simple guideline, the investor is never going to sue you also never, but is less likely to sue you because they can go on with their life. Hmm. You lose more money than that investor can afford to lose. Even if it's compliant with the rules, you will get sued because you've harmed their life. Hmm. So both the investor has to show discipline, but the entrepreneur should not sell to the point where they're taking in capital that they know is disproportionate from the individual's ability to absorb the loss. Now back to your question. So Going public is a process, and that process is a serious regulatory process that involves federal and jurisdictional regulators in both Canada and the U.S., who, to their credit, work very hard, and they are like emergency room doctors. They see a lot of things that they didn't necessarily want to sign up for. They want to help with the process of helping entrepreneurs raise money, their view as to how and when it should take place is different than mine, but it's a legitimate disagreement and discussion point. They've seen a lot of people lose money and they don't want to see that happen. I don't have the same degree of difficulty with it that they do because I think there's a proper balance. Having said that, the 
entrepreneur wants to go enter the public markets, and now you are going to be accountable not only to investors, but to regulators who will monitor your activity. So you need to protect yourself by hiring qualified lawyers and accountants, because there are a lot of nuances to these things that are not common sense, whether or not it's listing on the NEO or uh, the TSX or complying with the OSC's rules. After 30 years of practice, I'm learning things all the time. So how is an entrepreneur who wants to do it for the first time going to do it intuitively? It's just not possible. So if you don't have the stomach or the attention span or the commitment to all of that, then you ought not do it because you will do it in a slipshod manner and you will get tagged with issues along the way. This is the cost of capital and raising money from really decent people who want to support interesting ideas. And you have the same responsibility. This is another way of saying what I said earlier, which is the way you translate the responsibility to the investors is by agreeing to have enough internal infrastructure with your company to comply with the rules and regulations. And then you've earned the right to be a public company. And in Canada, like the US, you can start off slower and smaller, and then you go, you have graduated length method of achievement up to the TSX. And that's when real institutions and bigger dollars will come into your opportunity if you've executed properly. Right. Um, I'm curious, and, and you know, the statement that it's a process, I think that's really sound. And to build on that, something that I've come to realize is that once you're a public company, you're now operating two companies, one for delivering to your customers and the other is for delivering to your investors. When it comes to investor relations, perhaps this is something I, we veer off the path of the legal point of view, but what have you seen done well and, and companies when they come to engage investors and speak to the markets? And also, where do you see them go off track? Well, we're back to the same conversation again, Corey, right? Which is, it sounds trite, be honorable in what you're doing. Don't oversell, don't you know, hype the market. But because you're a public company, you have the ability to communicate loud and proud through a range of media, what it is that you're doing, what it is that you're proud of and how you're doing it. And I don't think you need to be shy about that. I do think you have to be very responsible in the language that you're using. Mm. You can't you know, be a startup and talk about the $100 billion market opportunity that you're going after as if you're a realistic piece of that. That's a mm. classic problem. Or you can, but you need to tell people, yeah, but I've got you know, less than 0.01% of it. Don't then say, well, I'm, you know, if I only get 1% of it, then I'll be a successful company because the likelihood of you getting from 0.0001 to 1% is there's a lot between here and there. So how do we balance that? Because there's one about being loud and proud. And I think that this is an important aspect of engaging both the retail and the institutional audience. You need to be engaging. Let's face it, you're a product, you're a commodity in the sense that. that people will trade out of you if they see some, you know, a shiny object or they've got to rebalance their portfolio. So being loud and proud with balancing appropriate language. But that's you know, where lawyers help guide you on that, right? You can't say, you know, a classic thing that I teach my young professionals in my firm, don't use the word unique. The likelihood hmm. that you're unique is statistically unlikely. Hmm. In essence, yeah, to the, the definition, definition of the word, you are right, not so unique. <laughs> language makes a big difference. Now, 
The one thing I'll say to your audience is I don't find that regulators want to hang good people on innocent mistakes. Now, innocent mistakes over and over again shows neglect. Mm. So you analogize, let's go to the ICO market, which I assume that you paid some attention to a few years ago. It was a disaster. I actually think that anything that everybody, most things that those folks did was unlawful in the classic sense and deserved the backhand of regulatory enforcement. But to the credit of U.S. and Canadian regulators, they saw that these were young, decent entrepreneurs who went astray because their professionals actually didn't guide them better, and they didn't tag them with problems. So for all of the bad stories about this regulator gave me a hard time or her a hard time, that's not my experience for the most part. It does happen. Mostly they give you a hard time when you really oversell in an exaggerated and irresponsible way. But the best way to avoid that is heed the advice of your advisors, and you'll learn the rules as you go. And loud and proud is not the same thing as irresponsible and reckless. Hmm. Gotcha. Thanks for that advice. I'm looking at time here. This conversation's going quick. It's been really enjoyable. Let's bring it back to your legal tech companies. I'm sure there's some interesting stuff there. So what can you share with us about those? Well, as a result of my efforts in crowdfunding, I met a lot of really interesting young entrepreneurs, some of which we just supported on a passive basis. But two or three of them, we came up with the concepts. So one of them was to automate legal documentation around the startup community. And that call it legal Zoom, but specifically for startup and venture life. And that's called Law Cloud. Specifically in crowdfunding US, you have to provide a disclosure document that needs to be filed with the SEC, which is like a PPM. And we automated that process so that entrepreneurs could fill those documents out themselves, push a button, and it would be filed with the SEC automatically. Mm -hmm. And we filed hundreds of those on behalf of issuers. And is that basically kind of along the lines of a prospectus for crowdfunding? Yeah. Same thing. You know, it's a questionnaire, very involved. We tried to simplify it as much as possible. And we guide entrepreneurs through hundreds of questions, including risk factors. And so at the end of it, it gets filed. And then they can go raise in the U.S. crowdfunding now up to $5 million through these regulated platforms called crowdfunding platforms that are regulated by the SEC and FINRA. So that's a big success. But there are also other smaller features that we have included in that offering. But we went from the crowdfunding prospectus, as you would refer to it, called a Form C, to a full PPM. And then there's another version, both in the US and Canada, called Reg A. And that's over a 1,000 questions to populate a Reg A plus form. And for me, it was professionally interesting to see if we could automate that, which is a fairly sophisticated securities offering. So that was one of the deals. And the second one is we provide updated and ongoing disclosure to the digital asset community, like securities tokens. In the US, if you're not on NASDAQ or New York Stock Exchange, you have to comply with all 50 state securities laws in order to be able to sell across state lines. Our technology helps those issuers comply with many of those state securities laws, Hmm. and it's an efficiency tool. Interesting. Yeah. You know, I think that uh, as us Canadians, we tend to forget that across the border there, each state is a very unique place to do business. Come on. You know, I forget the number. I apologize in advance. I know it's 12, 13 provinces. provinces. 
and you have different jurisdictional rules uh, on even your own crowdfunding. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I don't know how different it is, but oh yeah, for crowdfunding things like that. Yes, perhaps. Yeah, and you know, I'll step back when it's a uh, <laughs> our securities commissions. They seem to all care to have the different rules, and there's always been a battle of do they come together or not. Well, you wish you could preempt each of those. And I worked, you know, up in Canada on the crowdfunding rules. So that's why I knew a little bit. So I apologize for challenging you. Shouldn't do that to your host <laughs> no, on his own show. I appreciate um, it. You're the but, first to do it, actually. 80 episodes in, you're the first to actually put me on the spot. So uh, <laughs> yeah, good stuff. Well, no, let's finish by saying securities laws are complicated. It's serious business. And if you want to raise money from third parties, the responsibility is on to the entrepreneur. I've spent my career trying to help entrepreneurs raise money in new and interesting and differentiated ways as technology has evolved. Mm. And I think it's been very successful. So notwithstanding the hesitations and concerns of regulators and investor protection advocates, I think more than on balance, we've proven these innovations to be worthwhile for everybody involved. Well, I think your success speaks to that. So I really appreciate you taking the time here, Doug. It was a great conversation. I hope your audience got something out of it. And they're welcome to hit me up on LinkedIn, or if they have questions, get in touch with you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.